the best things in life for free. If you subscribe to The Spectator, you'll get a whole month for free. And after that, you'll only pay a pound for full access to our website and to our app. And if you want to pay two pounds, you'll get our magazine too. To claim this offer, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash free. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. And I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor. On this week's episode, we'll be discussing Ukraine's much-heralded counter-offensive, celebrating the life and writing of Jeremy Clark, and debating the curious business of fertility. First up, in his cover piece for the magazine, journalist Mark Galliotti asks whether Putin can be outsmarted by Zelensky's counter-offensive. He joins us now, along with The Spectator's own Svetlana Mornetsk. Mark, to start with, you describe the counter-offensive as Schrodinger's counter-offensive. Could you explain why? Well, I think because in some ways, first of all, we've got the case that people, I think, have this assumption that when the counter-offensive starts, we'll know it because it'll be this massive hammer blow Well, actually, that's not necessarily the nature of modern war. It can begin with a whole variety of pulsed local offensives and so forth that build up a crescendo or whatever. And also, the offensive also includes the kind of shaping operations which are meant to be there to prepare the battlefield. Things like the the recent raid we've had across the border into Russia's Belgorod region. That may look like a small raid. Well, it is. But nonetheless, it is actually part of the overall offensive. So The first reason is it is both started and not yet started. The second reason is because it is both crucially important and also, I wouldn't say irrelevant, but certainly not the kind of war winner that a lot of the more exaggerated takes suggest. Because on the one hand, yes, of course, the Ukrainians need to launch this offensive and they need to and want to take back territory. But however much they may shift the lines on the map, that is unlikely, certainly for this year, to lead to peace. So again, I think this is it. I mean, we, we have to accept that uh, those people who want a nice, straightforward narrative, that there'll be a counteroffensive, that Russian forces will be pushed out of the country, and that that'll be the end of the war, are going to be disappointed. Well, Svetlana, I wonder, do you agree with Mark there that the sort of nice, straightforward narrative is unlikely? I mean, you write in the piece this week that you worry that the counteroffensive has been overhyped. Could you explain what you mean by that to our listeners? Uh, yes, sure. For months, Kiev has been promoting the big spring counteroffensive, and there was a reason to that to to prompt the Western allies to send more weapons to Ukraine, especially the uh, the Challenger tanks were sent to Ukraine thanks to like, this promotion of the counteroffensive. The same with the fighter jets, because after the a success in the Kharkiv region and Kherson region last year. Uh, the words of that Ukraine was actually capable of doing that. But the problem is that as every Ukrainian official has been talking about the big counteroffensive that is going to start so soon, so soon, and it's still not happening, uh, we end up with the Ukraine allies having so big expectations. And we don't know if Ukraine will be able to meet them when actually everything starts. And if it can't meet them, are you worried that, that Western support will therefore start to falter? 
Yes, I think they could uh, say that Ukraine should maybe think about negotiations with Russia if they are not if they receive such amount of weapons and they are not capable of liberating new territories. Just even Ukrainian soldiers are a bit upset of everyone talking about the counteroffensive because they are the ones who will be fighting and uh, getting injured uh, or even dying and because it is a very popular topic in Ukraine too and all the Ukrainians are like okay when is it when is it because everybody wants to win everybody wants the war to be over and soldiers are like please shut up about it and <laughs> just <laughs> let us do our job mm. and Mark you say in your piece that the, the kind of aim is, is to demonstrate to western backers what you refer to as return on investment which I think is a phrase that you've you've heard people talking about what would a return on investment look like to the West? Well, again, it's a rather distasteful term, but I encountered it a lot, particularly in, in Washington. And I think in that context, you know, what the, the point they're making really is that this is a war that the West is spending billions every month, whether it's billions of dollars, euros or pounds, in terms of both military as well as financial support. And this is at a time when there are very few political leaders in the West who are sitting there thinking, my budget has just too many billions, how can I spend some more? Quite the opposite, actually. You know, there, there are a lot of people who both would rather see the funds channeled in other directions or else are simply facing pressure from their own electorates or their own parliaments. Not so much to, to not spend on Ukraine, but to spend on other priorities. And so in that context, I think there is the need to show some kind of a win. And this is where politics comes in. It may well be that what is militarily significant is not necessarily politically so. You know, if the Russian forces are sufficiently degraded, for example, that they can't launch any more offensive operations for the rest of this year, that might well count in military terms as a real achievement. However, politically, what people are looking for is basically territory taken, the lines on the map showing the battle, battle lines being moved, and ideally something spectacular, you know, a, a major city falling, whether it's one of the more recently conquered ones, such as Mariupol or Militopol, or whether it's something like, say, Donetsk itself, you know, the, the city which has been at the heart of Russian operations since 2014. So again, I, th I think this is it. It's, it's about politics. It's about the need to demonstrate to constituencies and also to governments that this is a war which can be won. And I think this is a crucial thing. And I think Svetlana was absolutely right that in the earlier stages, Kiev talked up the prospects of victory because that was needed to unlock additional military assistance from, from the West. But now, unfortunately, that has built up certain expectations. So something needs to be supplied to do that. And this is one of the reasons why, although some people say that Ukraine is not yet fully in, in place to launch a proper offensive, I think they're probably wrong. But nonetheless, there is that discussion within some military analytic circles. Politically speaking, Kiev has to move sooner rather than later. Svetlana, yesterday, the head of the Wagner paramilitary group said that 20,000 of his fighters were killed in the battle for Bakhmut, and he warned of a revolution against Putin if the handling of the war does not improve. And then this morning, Wagner has said that Bakhmut is being transferred over to the Russian army. What do you make of that? Is, is this a significant moment in the war or is it a, a, a sort of sideshow from, from um, you know, the counteroffensive? 
Uh, first, I um, read this morning about Ukrainian officials saying that uh, it is true that uh, Wagner fighters have been replaced by ra- Russian regular army, but on the outskirts of Bakhmut, but the city center is still under Wagner. So they stay there. And I would say that the, the conflict between Prihozhin and Russian defense ministry was for sure beneficial for Kyiv. But still, uh, Prihozhin is like working for Putin and doing whatever he wants. So it's not going to change many things. And also, he claimed that Russians already took over Bakhmut. But um, it's also about uh, Ukrainian defense ministry sometimes giving confusing reports because as it happened with Solidar, they recognized that it will, it fallen to Russians like one week after all the media already covered it. <laughs> so I understand why they are do, doing that, because every loss for Ukraine means the West thinking, mm, okay, maybe they're not as strong as they think, you know. Mark, I mean, how likely do you think it might be that this war could be over by, say, Christmas? I mean, is there is there any evidence to suggest that Putin or Zelensky might be willing to discuss terms? I unfortunately see no signs of that at all. Look, the problem is at the moment that both sides ultimately think that time is on their side. The Ukrainians are feeling much more confident. They have all this new Western kit with yet more being promised. We've got the F-16 jets in due course, which will be coming on stream. And so their sense is that they will be able to steadily liberate more territory, push the Russians back out of the occupied territories. And from that point of view, either... They are then in a stronger position to actually make a deal or else in some ways they de facto impose a certain kind of peace, though it's not a real end to the war, by precisely pushing the Russians out. On the other hand, from Putin's point of view, I don't think he honestly believes now he's going to win a war on the battlefield. But he sees Ukraine's key vulnerability as being precisely the extent to which it is entirely dependent on Western financial and military assistance. And so I think he feels that so long as he can stay in the game, so long as he can actually ensure that he still is being able to fight Ukraine, well, at a certain point, Western unity, Western will will begin to falter. And obviously, to a degree, they're looking at the 2024 US presidential elections and the continuing prospect of a Trump victory, which could well change things quite quite significantly. So both sides essentially think that this is not the most advantageous moment for them to be talking peace. So putting aside all the issues of what would peace look like, the complex issues about the future of of Crimea and all the other minutiae, just in general terms, neither side is at the moment willing to talk talk peace talks. And I can't see this counteroffensive, this spring and summer campaigning season, changing things so dramatically on the ground that either Putin is forced to come to terms or indeed that Zelensky is. Svetlana, I wonder what you make of Mark's analysis. Uh, For Ukraine, it's a bit a race against time because uh, recently Zelensky said that the war must be won before the US elections because, I mean, everybody knows that Trump is like uh, not very on Ukraine's side and he has been talking that he will end, if he becomes a president, he will end the war in 24 hours, just forcing Ukraine to negotiate. So, so in terms of the, the timeline then, Mark said that both sides think time is on their side, but it sounds like there is a sort of ticking clock for Ukraine if they are looking ahead to the 2024 elections. Yes, yeah, sure. And also, 
on New Year's speech, uh, Zelensky was talking about, uh, when he was giving a speech to Ukrainians, uh, he was saying that this war will be won by the end of this year. It is the year of our victory. Mm-hmm. And he was doing that just for keeping the spirit high. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what happened? I mean, on Ukrainian TV, TV, you can hear some of the officials saying the war will be over till the end of summer, in some months, in two weeks, mm-hmm. by the end of the year. So. I think many people would prefer they don't give these uh, promises mm-hmm. and just say, okay, we have to fight till we win and not, not say, don't, don't give this date. Because when the expectations are not met, the Ukrainians feel a bit disappointed. <laughs> well, Svetlana and Mark, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Next up, in the magazine this week, the journalist David Goodhart writes a moving tribute to his friend Jeremy Clark, the Spectator's much-missed low-life columnist who very sadly died earlier this week. He's joined now by another close friend of Jeremy's, Cass Pennant, and Freddie Gray, the Spectator's deputy editor. David, can you start by telling listeners how you came to know Jeremy? Yes, I was uh, on the point of setting up a magazine called Prospect back in the mid-1990s. And uh, a few weeks, it was quite an earnest political magazine full of long, boring essays. And I realised we needed a bit of a light touch. And fortunately, somebody who edited a London University magazine showed me a piece by Jeremy, who I'd never met, um, a hilarious piece, I think it was about one of his trips to Africa. And I thought, he, here is the man. And I contacted him and uh, he ended up doing the kind of light relief column in Prospect in our early years. And he was always a delight to work with. Um, never had to change uh, as Fraser was saying about his subsequent spectator columns, never had to change a word. And um, he he became a big favourite in the magazine, as I say, people looking for a bit of light relief. So I was claim that I kind of introduced him really to the idea of writing for a living. I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't live just off what we at Prospect paid him. It was a monthly magazine. But a few years later, he got pinched by you guys. Um, Stuart Reid pinched him. I think in 1999 or 2000. But so I do think that I am responsible for kind of setting him on the path towards believing that he could make a living as a writer. And in return, he introduced me to lots of various stimulants. Um, <laughs> do, do you carry on? What, no, what? I don't think I will. <laughs> Cass, how about you? How did, how did you come to know Jeremy? Uh, well, Jeremy is a massive West Ham fan. And I knew him in his teens, with, with the same age, you know, within a year. So it was kind of 70s and that we used to go to West Ham. But then I knew him as all right mate. Then in later years, we first started talking down in the chicken run bar, of course, at the bar. Um, and then I got to know him as Jeremy and what he was doing. And he asked me what I was doing. And I said, I'm into books and all that. And he offered to help us. He said, I'd love to review a book for a spectator. And, did you, and so you knew that he was a great writer. Were you kind of aware? No, of no. Was... I had a couple of friends who were film directors, documentary directors of... of quite renowned and um, one of them was a regular spectator reader and he was all excited coming up how would you get your book review in the spectator and how would you get low life column he said that's the first column I read and that's when I I realised about the spectator um, and I was tickled by the name low life column at first I thought "Mm." (laughs) hmm is this a a downer you know what I mean (laughs) But um, yeah, there's a couple of filmmaker pals of mine that 
religiously spectator and I was like, wow, that was really something like. But then we just struck up the relationship with he would do reviews and book quotes for me and I was quite surprised because since then I met a few people that um, were in awe of his column and all that. But I was really surprised because whenever I asked him to do things, he said, I can't believe you're asking me, should I get someone else? I say, no, you, Jeremy, I need you to do it. You know, we always stand, you'll get it, and all that. And it was, it was very um, humble, right? But he never saw himself, and all the time I knew him, as why everyone speaks about him, about a great columnist. He was quite apologetic, you know, and I found it strange because with my background, I kind of got no right to be into book world and with what I've achieved. I think he was proud of that. But I was surprised from him, it was consistent. He always, he was always very humble, but putting himself down, not humble just because he was humble. It, it felt to me, he never rated himself. And it was almost like pinch myself moment in what he was doing. That's how he kind of, and I think that comes across in the passion and why people think of his columns. It's not just a job in work. You know, I've got to get a column out each week. You know what I mean? He, he really believed it was an opportunity to express himself. And Freddie, you knew Jeremy through The Spectator, obviously. What do you think made him such a brilliant and, and well-loved writer? I just think he was a wonderful human being and it, and it, it came through in, in the writing and in the journalism. Um, I, I don't know, didn't know him for as long as, as David and Cass, but um, I, when he died on Sunday, I went through a lot of my emails and I remembered that in the sort of mid, I've been the spectator about twelve years, and in the mid two thousand tens, we sent him on a lot of freebies, travel freebies, which is sort of like a travel PR will get in touch and offer you a free holiday, and the deal is it's a grubby deal. You're supposed to sort of write about what a great time you had, but Jeremy was so amazingly honest about everything, would always describe these unbelievably awful trips that he'd had, <laughs> and there was one I remember where he went on a train to Heathrow to go on the trip. And the train decapitated somebody who was trying to commit suicide. And so he opened the piece with this description of, a, of a, someone being decapitated by a train on the way to Heathrow. And the PR, <laughs> I mean, the PR from the travel company came, you, you can't do this. You can't, you can't start this piece about what's meant to be a lovely holiday with this scene. But he did it. And then I thought I'd read out, because I, I saw these amazing emails from him that was sent out when he was uh, abroad. Sorry, bear with me. Hold on, I'll find it. And this was a trip we sent him on to Brazil. And I got this email from him saying, Freddie, this Brazil trip is a total fiasco. <laughs> Said to them I had no ready cash. True. Now the PR people are going to pressure you for dough up front because they're all pissed off with Olivia, who was the editor of Spec Life, which was a supplement at the time, for not going. Don't give in. Tell them pas possible. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was really my experience, was trying to sort of persuade him to go on these trips, which he was always sort of up for, but then it would end up being disastrous. And he was always very funny about them. And, and David, in your piece, you say that Jeremy just you know, obviously was an absolutely brilliant writer, but was also riddled with self-doubt. And you point out that he never came around to writing a novel. Do you, I mean, do you think he wanted to write a novel or do you think he was... Yeah, think I don't know. The column kind of suited his style. I wonder if there is a novel somewhere hidden away in a bottom drawer that will, that will emerge. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, perhaps it is slightly sad that... that I mean, it's interesting... I mean, quite a few people were mentioning him and Martin Amis in the same breath on Twitter on Sunday, uh, Sunday or Monday. Um, you know, we've lost two of these great satirical English writers. Yeah, you know, one of them has 
left a huge number of not always brilliant novels. Um, <laughs> And one uh, who, you, who we would really like to have write at least one novel um, hasn't left anything. And, and perhaps that was to do with a kind of self-doubt. And uh, On the other hand, you know, he did, you know, he was writing in The Spectator, one of the most prestigious magazines in the country. He was doing the travel writing. I mean, you know, he was, I mean, perhaps he was often having to pinch himself to remind himself that, you know, Martin Amos you know, was the son of a drunken, you know, writer, whereas he was the son of a drunken bank clerk um, and, and perhaps wasn't expecting to end up as a... But, you know, but perhaps he just wasn't hearing all of the the sort of recognition and praise. I mean, I remember more recently when he did, you know, he was writing about dying and sort of saying, you know, Dave, I, I didn't know people loved my column so much. Uh, but it's as if, but you know, he must have known that at some level. But it kind of didn't seep in, and there was, a, there was, I think, deep down, a, mm. a kind of lack of confidence. Yeah. And Cass, it, it seems to me as, lo- as though lots of people have lots of amusing, entertaining stories of their time with Jeremy. What, what would be kind of your favourite story of your time with Jeremy? Um, my son's in the navy, and um, so it led us to, to Dartmouth for his past and outplayed. And um, we're in a pub, and Jeremy was there. What are you doing here? You know what I mean? And I said, well, what? I know what I'm doing here. What, what are you doing here? Because <laughs> this company of spectator parties and it always go back to South London. I think he shared flats there. And uh, he said, well, I live down here. Who are you with? And I said, my wife and my son and all that. He said, oh, you must come round my house for tea. So I think of it's street. We went round here. My wife loved it. You know, he might, she, made, she made him at home. We had the old Devon scones and a couple of teas in his best porcelain. He went on to write about it in The Spectator, but one thing he never wrote about, he kept, he's very apologetic, and he kept apologising, because we're looking around and thinking, like, wow, we've just come up from Penge, you know what I mean, south-east London, and I thought, this is nice, Jeremy, you know what I mean? It's like postcard England, you know what I mean? <laughs> and he was going, no, nah, no, nah, nothing goes on here. He said, you wouldn't like it, nothing goes. In fact, the most that's ever happened here is the police commander scrambled the helicopter for an egg thief. I said, egg thief? He said, yeah, we've got a village here and they put the eggs out for anyone to take. But we had a thief and it's getting everyone down. So the commander lives in, lives there. He scrambled the helicopter. So most that's ever happened in the street. You know what, <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Fred? What's your kind of happiest memory of Jeremy? Uh, well, something I found very, very touching that he did once was... Um, we, he used to love going to the pub before spectator parties and, and those the sort of best times I had with him was sort of standing outside the pub before a spectator party having a, a few pints. And um, I made some joke to him about marital difficulties and I could see he was like a little bit taken by this, like this joke that I'd made. And the next time I saw him was four weeks later or so at another spectator party and he came up to me and he gave me a fistful of Viagra. <laughs> And then he raised his fist in the air as if to say, this will sort you out. <laughs> and I was just very touched that he'd obviously gone home <laughs> and thought, how can I help Freddie with his marital problems? He's a kind uh, man, isn't he, Jeremy? And David, I know you've been um, down in France with him, or you were down in France with him over the past few months. What what was that like? Yeah, I, I mean, it was a great... It, it wasn't exactly a, a coincidence. I mean, I, I, me and my partner, Kate, had, for various reasons, decided we wanted go away somewhere for a few weeks and I thought 
let's go to France. We're going to go to France. I'd love to see Jeremy. I knew he was very ill already. Um, we went. Um, uh, we were relatively close to Cossignac, where he lived for seven or eight weeks, and then we were actually in Cossignac, just about five minutes away, for for much of April. And um, we weren't there at the very end, but um, and it was, you know, just being with. He was so good at putting people at their ease. He was always so cheerful and and just sort of lying on the bed next to him and him kind of reflecting on his life and telling me all sorts of stories and and uh, he 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 got really uh, you know he had great intellectual enthusiasms and he he was reading deeply into the first world war for the for the last few months of his life and he became, became a bit obsessed by who's the who's the famous composer I've forgotten his name who died at the Somme and then, you know, his commanding officer famously had no idea that he was, you know, he was kind of on a par with Vaughan Williams. And he kind of loved that about the guy. I mean, I think that, the, the sort of humility... Although I think I actually said in my piece that, you know, he, he loved humility in others. Actually, I think that's not really true. He actually rather liked big characters. You know, there's that picture of him that's been all over the place recently, you know, kind of hugging Boris. And, you know, he was always writing... In fact, he was a bit of a star fucker. Uh, he was always writing about Eric Idle and, and, you know, Brian Cox. And so he was very, very humble himself... And actually, I think you know, did did appreciate genuine humility in other people, but also like people who were, you know, who had something to brag about. Yeah. Also, in in the last columns, I think what you got a lot of was his love of the sort of Victorian brigadier attitude, and that's what I think was so moving about the final columns was he was trying to he was trying to adopt this very brave Victorian attitude to death, mm. Mm. and he was very honest about how difficult it was and funny yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. And Cass, just just to finish on, I mean, how how will you remember Jeremy? I, I just remember him as a guy that helped me so much when we shared a working class attitude, always underdog, you know. And he helped me so much when I was publishing books, and even up to the last minute, my last book, um, he'd be pleased it's in the top five of the West Ham fan charts on Amazon right now. <laughs> yeah. um, again, helped me out with. Another book quote, you know, um, even in France, you know, as ill as he was. And I, I look back kind of thing and think, well, I'm kind of proud of him because I remember good many years ago, all his friends invited me to the Last Supper dinner. <laughs> What's this for? They said, Jeremy's, we don't think Jeremy's got long. So we're having all, all his friends f- for the last dinner. That was years ago. <laughs> and I remember him being like chuckled at it. it amused him you know what I mean because he, he weren't convinced he was going thank you David Freddie and Cass and finally The Spectator's Deputy Features Editor Gus Carter writes this week about the curious business of fertility and the fertility show that he went to he's now joined by Nimco Ali the co-founder and CEO of the Five Foundation Gus, in your piece, you start by saying that you're becoming increasingly broody, but seem to say that that's uncommon for men of your age. Can you tell us a bit about that and also about this fair that you went to? Um, well, I was dispatched there by you, uh, <laughs> which, I, which, I, which, I think was, which I think was a bit of a troll in a way, in that you know I'm someone that's, that's kind of reasonably broody. And, I, and part of me thought maybe you were trying to, I don't know, be like, go on then, go and, go and find out about this. I mean, it's obviously not that unusual. Most people kind of end up having having 
kind of kids and a family in the end. It's not like it's something kind of mega radical. But I think when I talk to my my friends about it, there aren't that many blokes that are that are like thinking about it hard, you know. And I spend a lot of time thinking about it, thinking about trying to find the right person. And you know, in in my mind, my future is one in which in which I have kids. And I think you have to you have to kind of have that front and center in your mind when you're when you're kind of out and about in the world in a way. And tell us about the fair. What did you what did you discover? So so the fair was was kind of. I mean, it, it felt normal at first, and then the more time I spent there, the the kind of odder it got. Like I say in the piece, everything's teal, and if you and if you look up Harley Street fertility clinics, they all use teal as well. There's kind of, there's some kind of teal conspiracy, but no, they, I mean the, there were there were kind of very straightforward things like IVF clinics um, and things like surrogacy, uh, and there were clinics from places like Cyprus that have flown over, and then there was also kind of weirder stuff like uh like yoga and fertility and that kind of thing uh it was basically kind of everything and anything you could think of to try and help yourself get knocked up fair enough and Nimka, uh, fertility as gus says in his piece seems to be quite a hot topic at the moment is that something that you've noticed yeah no definitely i think also get into that space of like you know i think thinking about fertility as a woman so i did a um a research into the whole issue just before i turned 35 and i think the massive kind of miseducation or the, the lack of information that young people or people have I think we end up like Gus was saying end up thinking about our fertility when we get to the point of thinking now we're adults and responsible should we get pregnant or should we not get pregnant so yeah I think it's a um, it's a really big topic within my kind of um, friends and my, my, my kind of cohort at the moment because I think we're all in that kind of mid to late 30s where having children and settling down is kind of one of the things that you're expected to do. And one of the points you make, Gus, is fertility treatment is almost presented as a lifestyle choice and mm. sort of feeds into this idea that you can have whatever you want, whenever you want. But do you think that's slightly misleading? I think it's totally misleading. I think I think the NHS, very helpfully, has a page uh, on its website where they break down how likely you are to to be able to have kids. And by the time you hit 40 as a woman, your chances of, of a successful round of IVF are, are one in 10. Once you get over 42, I mean, it's like low single digits, right? Like it, it becomes incredibly difficult. And and I do worry that it's it's kind of presented as something that, that, that can just, you know, extend your extend your opportunities, extend your, your 20s into your 30s kind of thing. And I mentioned in the piece there are, there are companies in America where, you know, on their graduate schemes, once you sign up, you get, you get health care, you get dental, and you also get egg freezing. And the message seems to be, focus on your career, worry about kids later. And that just isn't how our biology works. Nimco, this week you've also written about the subject of vasectomies. Can you tell us about the argument that you made in your piece for people who might not have read your piece yet? Yeah, so it's really interesting because I think what Gus is saying, because I froze my eggs during lockdown, it was one of the kind of things, again, like, you know, being being kind of forced to kind of look at your mortality and kind of see the fact that you're not necessarily always like living in a fast paced world. But I think in terms of vasectomies, I think that's something that we really need to talk about. And I say in the piece, as somebody who has history or has my mother had hormonal breast cancer, the, the pill, it wasn't an option for me, but then all the other kind of forms of contraception, which are all focused on women, are either painful or they're not necessarily something that you want to pump pump into your um, system. So I think the idea, even when people choose that they've had uh, a number of kids that they want to have, it's always the onus, it's always the responsibilities on the woman. So I thought this is a a space for men to kind of come into. And I think vasectomies are 
um, like, you know, a lot safer than having a hysterectomy or whatever or getting your tubes tied and all these other kind of things. But ultimately, the case that I made is that why are we focusing on women who actually might not even be fertile? So I think that there's also another thing that we're not told is that as long as you're young, you're, you're, you're fertile. And I remember there was an episode of Sex in the City where she found out at the age of 35 that she couldn't get pregnant. And she said, for, th- for, for almost 20 years, I've been trying not to get pregnant. I'm not even fertile enough to get pregnant. So this idea, the fact that women are always given the responsibility of making sure that they're not the ones that get knocked up when it's actually men who are the ones that are, as I refer to the book, um, what is it, not ejaculating responsibly. And I think that was the, I think that is the title of a book that was written by an American woman who is very much leading this conversation around vasectomy and the, and, and the responsibility being put on men rather than women. Mm. Nimco, I found your piece really interesting. And I think at one point in the piece, you, you ask, why is it me as a woman that has to be the one that bears the, the the cost of of pregnancy, and I think I think I just kind of disagreed with you in that like this is just how our biology is set up, right? I I totally agree with you that that men that men can kind of behave terribly and get away with it, but that's because of the way our our biology is, right? You know, women are the ones that that suffer, uh, you know, a fertility that that kind of that tails off. They they are also the ones that that bear children, and that I think rather than a kind of inherent misandry. You know, this is just how our bodies are. Women are the ones that bear children. Yeah, but I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with that. I think the point that I'm making is the fact that women, at best, are fertile for 24 hours or for, or for 48 hours a month. And you can, like, you know, now that there are these incredible apps that can kind of track your ovulation and your periods and all these other kind of things. But men mm. are fertile 24 hours a day in terms of the fact that a man could have sex with four women who, if they were all in their fertile window, could all get pregnant. So what I'm saying is that why is it on the women and only on the women to be able to be filled with drugs and to be able to prevent pregnancy as opposed to really looking at the people who are a little bit more responsible for this. And I think I think the concept of the book and the, the basically where it came out of was, again, this title of the fact that actually looking at male sexuality so the whole point is that it's men not taking responsibility for their sperm that is leading women to have these anxieties about oh, getting I don't pregnant. disagree with you I'm not I saying don't, oh, I don't oh. I don't disagree with you at all but the problem is is yeah. like the buck biologically you know it ends with women right they are the ones who, who have to deal with it I don't think this is a good thing right I'm not I'm not saying like lucky blokes we can get away with it like obviously it's terrible when a man you know knocks a woman up and and legs it but 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 I think this is why it's always been women who've taken control of of contraception. You know, obviously there are terrible, you know, things around the pill. Lots of my friends have stopped taking it because it does stuff to them hormonally, to their emotions, to their weight and that kind of thing. But the idea that suddenly men have to all get vasectomies to deal with that, I think you would end up in a world in which you'd have plenty of blokes who were just pretending to have had a vasectomy. And also I think you say in the piece that there's a there's a one in ten chance that a man ends up permanently infertile. That's a huge risk to take with with, you know, someone else's life. Yeah, but you know what, like, you know, cancer, blood clots and all these other kind of things are actually quite like, you know, massive risks that women are meant to take just so we don't get pregnant. I think the conversation is that in two responsible adults are having a conversation about starting families and about their own fertility as a couple. Why is the onus always then on the woman to do something? And also in the sense that if we can send people to the moon and kind of have these incredible leaps in science when it comes to treatments for other things, why is it that when it comes to contraception, 
like nothing has changed for the last 60 years in the sense that women are still like, you know, demanded to take the pill. I, I, I once read that the male pill um, cannot get its clearance because the fact that too many men are too scared to take it because they might get side effects. I think it was suicide. I think there were lots of side effects of women getting it. Like, I think there were lots of suicides when they did when they did the trial for the male pill. It, you know, it actually really badly affected men's men's mental health. Yeah, but 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 this is but this is what I mean. I know you're saying that as though it's a shocking thing, but that's what the pill does to women. No, I totally so my agree. Whole I kind don't of disagree com- with you on so that. So my whole kind of conversation is the fact that let's actually broaden the conversation and let's in a society which is 2023 actually start talking about the fact that men need to take as much responsibility for their fertility and also for not getting women pregnant. I wish that was true. I really wish that was true, but pregnant. it isn't, right? Because because fundamentally, women are the ones that get pregnant. They, you know, they're, they're like on the reality of of people's biology, women are the ones that bear that bear the responsibility, right? But no, no, I completely understand. That. I'm not saying that women should be not having children, or we should be like you know um, get, getting pregnant in a way which is not within the biological context. Now, what I'm trying to say is that if two people are in a relationship, then the responsibility takes two people. Mm. So this idea, the fact that oh, it's women the ones that get pregnant, so therefore they're, they're the ones that have to um, look after themselves. It's not. It's men that get women pregnant, and it's men that can get multiple w- women pregnant. So let's actually put the onus onto men, and let's men take responsibilities rather than actually start making excuses saying, well, you're the one that. Going to be left, no, I'm um, not making that excuse. I'm lady. definitely not making that excuse. I'm not. I'm not saying somehow men bear a lower moral, you know, responsibility. What I'm saying is, is that is that the practicalities are just set up the way that they are. Yeah, no, but the way because they're set up because because society is socially um, like, you know, is structurally racist and sexist. So the whole point is the fact that we're putting it into this kind of context where the fact that I think the problem is that is that biology is sexist. Right. Women are the ones that 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 have to do an unfair level of biological labor when it comes to having children. Listen, listen, the whole point is by I'm not going to talk about the biology is like, you know, is sexist. The fact that we are the ones that are born with wombs and we are the ones that carry the baby for the nine months. That's fine. Outside of that, when, we're, when a child is born in terms of um, childcare and all these other kind of things, those are social structural Oh, yeah, totally things. agree. Totally and agree. even this conversation in the terms of medical misogyny, in the sense that even, let's just say, the fact that there's a couple, they've had two kids, three kids, or, have it, or however many kids that they've agreed to have, then it's like that whole kind of conversation, then who has who basically takes the long-term contraception in this kind of conversation. And it always comes down to the woman. Why is the man, because for vasectomies are a lot safer than any other form of long-term contraception that women can have on the market and are less invasive than what, like, you know, having your tubes tied and so on. But ultimately, because of the fact that this whole thing about women are scared that they're going to be left holding the baby, it's their body that's going to go through the whole thing, is they are the ones that have to carry the burden of doing the whole contraception. So what I'm just asking for is some egalitarianism, some equality within contraception. I'm not I'm not bashing men. I'm just saying the fact that it takes two to get pregnant and the other person should also take responsibility. Thank you, Gus and Nimco. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore. And I'm Lara Prendergast. And we do hope you'll join us again next week. Thank you.